My name is Justin Craig. I am the family minister here at Windsor Road Christian Church. And this morning we are continuing our journey through our summer series called One Verse. This morning we will focus in on another portion of scripture. But before we do that, I would like you to get in my car with me to go on a little trip back to Lincoln Christian College in 2004. I'm finishing up my fall semester there. We're starting to get finals projects. We're starting to get, get the idea from, from, from our teachers and our professors about what it is they want by the end of the semester. And I'm in a class called Pentateuch, which studies the first five books of the Bible in depth with Dr. Walter Zorn. Now, Dr. Zorn is a commentary writer and has written several books. So he knows what he's talking about. He's kind of a traditionalist, all right? Just a very straightforward professor. It's an 8 a.m. class. Did I mention that too? Which 8 a.m. in college feels like five. It's like nobody else in the world is alive. Does anybody, anybody relate to that at all? Amen. Okay, good. I got an amen. All right, good. And so we get this final project of Dr. Zorn just sits us down and he tells us, he's like, I want you to create something. Thanks, Dr. Zorn. Give us a little more direction there. He goes, I want you, I want you to create a presentation around something we have learned in our class this year. And so one of the guys is like, oh man, you know, we got together afterwards. He's like, I, I think I'm going to do like, I'm going to make like some tablets of the Ten Commandments. I'm like, that's a good idea. I should have thought of that first, okay? And now, so like all the good ideas are starting to be taken. Okay, we've got one guy that's going to be building an altar to talk about the story of Abraham and Isaac. I'm like, man, that's awesome. What am I going to do? And so now I'm, I'm trying to rack my brain. And, and back then in college when I got a little bored, sorry, Dr. Zorn, if you're listening to this, I'm really sorry. I don't know how you got your hands on this. I'm just sorry. I'd get bored in class and I would sketch out like blueprints of houses, just weird like that, I guess, okay? And so I decided to get this brilliant idea of I'm going to do a blueprint of the tabernacle in Exodus. I'm like, this will be great, right? And so life just continues to get a little bit busier and busier and busier as we get closer and closer to the end of the semester, okay? Now, I was not a list maker at that time because I hadn't married my wife yet. She's very much a list maker and taught me how to do that properly and well. But I was not that person at that point in my life. So I had some things that just kind of got pushed out of my mind a little bit, okay? And so I'm sitting there. It's our finals week, and I'm sitting there. I'm playing video games like a good college student would do at the end of a semester during finals week, and I'm playing video games, and I'm going, Blake, my roommate, I'm going, Blake, I feel like I'm forgetting something. And he goes, well, what classes do you have left? I'm like, well, let me think. Oh, no. I had completely forgotten about my Pentateuch final. Okay, remember the blueprint of the tabernacle out of Exodus? I'm like, this is going to be great. And then all of a sudden, I just, it just drops out of my head. Information just drops out because there's too much clogging my mind at that point. And I'm overworked. I'm over busy. And I, you know, clearly busy by playing video games, okay? And it's just like, oh, this is no good. He's like, well, when's the class? I'm like, tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock. What time is it now? 11. Oh, good. 11 at night, by the way. And so, like, I immediately get in my car. I'm driving to Kroger, the only place that's open in Lincoln past 10 o'clock because Walmart Supercenter hadn't made its appearance yet. And we, I get to Kroger. I walk in. I go, hey, hey, how's it going? I'm like, I am looking for white poster board. He goes, ooh. I'm like, that's not an ooh of, hey, I got that for you down aisle four. That's an ooh, 
Good luck finding it. You know, he said, we've, you know, with finals week at the, at, the, at the college here, you know, lots of people have been in to buy a poster board. I'm like, no kidding. Oh, they're planners. Great. And so, so I, he's like, well, you can check down aisle 12 and just check it out. And I'm like, all right. So I go down, nothing. I mean, there's not even neon colors in there at that point. I'm just like, well, this is no good. I'm like, what am I going to do? You know, I've just, I've, I've been, I've got too much on my plate here. I just, I'm, I'm a little busy. I'm just trying to figure this out so that I can just pass the course. That's all I want to do. I just want to pass the course, okay? And so, so I, I get in my car and I start driving back to campus and I'm going, all right, I'm going to have to go dumpster diving, looking for some cardboard for me to write something on this piece of cardboard. I need something that I can draw on. I get back to the dorm before I go out and jump in dumpsters. I, I, I start walking down our hallway. I'm like, maybe there's like a end of the year blood drive that I can rip off the wall and like draw it on the back of there and take it to class and nothing, okay? So I get into my room. I sit down. I say, Blake, you got to help me, man. By this time, it's midnight. Class is at 8 a.m. I'm like, you got to help me. I was like, I really dropped the ball here. He's like, we got to stop passing you the ball. I'm like, I know, but, but I dropped the ball. Here's what happened, okay? And I was like, I need you to help me. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I don't, I have nowhere to draw this. Nobody has any poster board here on campus. Nobody has it at Kroger, the only place that's open. I can't wait till tomorrow morning. I was like, Dr. Zorn is going to kill me. I was like, maybe I could get it tattooed on my body somewhere. That'd be really cool, right? Just be like, oh, my finished project is on my back. And it's like, whoa, that's weird, all right? And so as I'm talking to Blake, I see a piece of our room decoration in, in our room. And I'm like, oh. And so I walk over behind Blake and I find what every good dorm room needs is a road sign. And in my road sign here, I'm like, I could draw it on the back of that. That would be great. I'm sorry if this is blinding anybody. It blinded somebody first. I'm really sorry. Okay. But I had my do not enter sign. He's like, no, no, that's not a good idea. Dr. Zorn, I don't think he's going to dig that. I'm like, well, he's, he's going to. He better. Like, this, this is all I got. So my finished project is on the back of my do not enter sign. Now, all I did was, all I tried to do here because of, you know, lack of time was draw straight lines, and the lines are pretty good, <laughs> okay? The lines are pretty, pretty nifty, but I, I drew it out, and I took it to class. Now, mind you, it's Lincoln, where the wind blows sideways year-round, and it's December, okay? So I'm walking to class holding my metal street sign, and my hands are starting to freeze to it. I get into class. Of course, I don't want Dr. Zorn to know. I get into class. I walk in, and he goes, well, I can't wait for this. I'm like, me neither. <laughs> this will be great, okay? And so, so we get in there. I show him my project. Everybody else has got, oh, these are my Ten Commandments. And, oh, this is the altar that Abraham built for Isaac. And I'm going, here's my road sign. Isn't it look pretty? And so I got through my presentation. And Dr. Zorn goes, well, does anybody have any questions? Because I sure have a few. And, uh, and he, no, nobody else. I mean, everybody's just like, he got away with bringing in a street sign. I had to build 10 commandments over here, you know. And he goes, where'd you get that? And I go, okay, so funny story. I worked at a Bible camp one summer. It was all about taking the right path. And so we had street signs all over the place. And they, they let us take some home. He's like, well, that's good. Because, you know, if you had stolen that, that might have hindered your grade a tad. I'm like, okay, good. And uh, he goes, my next question is, can I have that? And I said, absolutely not. Uh, because this is part of my room decoration, and it's a sign that I worked at a Bible camp for all summer long and got paid very, paid very little for it. And so it's like I really wanted to keep this. And so he gave me an A anyway on my project, but it made me start to think about too often in life, 
We create a pace that is unnecessary, unhealthy, and ungodly, and we end up missing things. Instead of displaying a calm confidence in Christ, we display a rushed reliance on ourselves. Our scripture this morning is in the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 46, verse 10. And here we get, we get a glimpse of God speaking through our psalmist this morning. He has this to say. God says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now what I like to do with our scripture this morning is just dig deeper in it. I want to just, just put our heels into it and really lean on our scripture this morning and find out what it is God is communicating through these words this morning. I want to start with the first two words of our scripture, be still. Now this is a term from the Hebrew language that means to, to let down or to cease. It actually has some military, military notes and it's a term for, for military use of cease and desist. It means to drop or be weak or faint. And it implies two people fighting until someone separates them and makes them drop their weapons. You see, God is calling us to be still because we are calling ourselves to be busy. I've said this before from our stage, and I want to say it again because I feel it's very valuable here. But restlessness is not an attribute of God. Restlessness is not in the fruit of the Spirit. God never commands us to be to have a sense of restlessness. It's an attribute of Satan. And so I ask myself the question of why? Why do we want to be busy? Why do we want to fill our plates with things? Why do, we, why do we remove things out of our system and then put something back in there because we feel like if our life has any holes, our life will be empty or meaningless. But why is it that we want to be busy? You see, we want to be hurried. We want to be annoyed. Unconsciously, we want the very things we complain about because if we had time of leisure, we would look at ourselves, listen to our hearts, and we would see the emptiness that only God can fill. Kevin DeYoung in his book, Crazy Busy, it's a short book on being extremely busy. He writes about Jesus' busyness or lack thereof. He says, Jesus didn't do it all. Jesus didn't meet every need. He left people waiting in line to be healed. He left one town to preach to another. He hid away to pray. He got tired. He never interacted with the vast majority of the people on the planet. He spent 30 years in training for only three years of ministry. He did not try to do it all, and yet he did everything that God asked him to do. Jesus had a clear focus. Jesus knew who was in charge. You see, the busyness that's bad is not the busyness of our work, but it's the busyness that works hard at the wrong things. Our focus just becomes a little bit twisted. When we work really hard on all of the good things, we will miss out on the great things. There are so many good things for us to be involved in as Christians, as human beings. There's so many good organizations. There's so many good causes. There's so many good things for us to be involved in. But if we are involved in every single one of them, we will miss what is best for us. Our focus is just a little off. And I don't want us to hear that we need to kill our ambition or our drive or our determination, but we need to realign our ambition, drive, and determination to be focused on the best things, to be focused on the God things. Now, I don't know what's best for you in the season or phase or stage of life that you are in. 
I don't know that. I can't answer that for you. Only that's a conversation between you and God of what's best for you. But I can tell you that in a hundred years, nothing else is going to matter except your relationship with Jesus. If we don't change how we live, our overcomplicated world will begin to feel frighteningly normal. This is not a normal I want my kids growing up knowing. Is the pace of life now something that we are willing to pass on to the next generation? One thing that I struggle with is efficiency <laughs> from my story in college, right? No, I, I, I find that that has actually turned me in a completely opposite direction to where I want things to be done efficiently. On Friday night, I'm eating dinner at our home and Lucy asks to be excused, our five-year-old asks to be excused and takes her cup into the kitchen. She knows she has to clear everything. She's got two hands. They're not full. And I'm going, why don't you take your plate with you? No, I'll come back for it. No, take it now. Why? I don't know. Why do I have to be like that? Why has God wired me for me to go, you need to be as efficient as, as I would be in this situation, right? I mean, efficiency can just be kind of a weird thing. I can tell you where wheat germ is in the Savoy Walmart. I plot out our grocery list according to where stuff is. If I know that I have to go get toiletries first and I go in the food door, I got to take an immediate right, go all the way down, get all of our stuff, and then make the big loop around. Okay, then I start in the bread, then I move around to the dairy, then I move into the pop and the juice and that kind of stuff. And I just, it's a sickness, everybody. This is just an awful, awful thing. Okay? Most of you probably don't even know what wheat germ is. I know where to find it in Walmart. And I wonder to myself, why are my kids not as efficient as I am? It's because they're kids. Why, can I, why would I expect them to do something that's taken me even past college to start to understand? I really resonate with this woman, Rachel Macy Stafford. She's, she's a New York Times best-selling author and a certified special education teacher. She has two daughters. And she talks about how she's always been hurrying her kids. She's like, I always find it amazing that my kids can play dress up for hours, but when it's time to go, they can't find their shoes, they can't zip up their coat. Where do we live in that house? I've got three girls in my house. Dress up's going to be part of my daily routine. But putting on our coat seems to be the most difficult thing in the world. She goes, I was always hurrying my kids out. We're going to be late for church. We're going to be late for school. We're going to be late for scouts. We're going to be late for practice. Hurry up, do this. Hurry up, do that. Hurry up, let's get in the car. Hurry up, let's, let's get in the house. Hurry up, go outside and play. She's like, I was constantly hurrying my kids around everywhere we went. She's like, until, until this one fateful day. She said, things changed. We just picked my older daughter up from kindergarten. We were getting out of the car. Not going fast enough for her liking, my older daughter said to her little sister, you are so slow. Can you imagine what that feels like as a young child? Having somebody say that you are so slow? And when my, when my older daughter crossed her arms and let out an exasperated sigh, I saw myself and it was a gut-wrenching sight. You see, I was, I was a bully who pushed and pressured and hurried a small child who simply wanted to enjoy life. My eyes were opened. I saw with clarity the damage my hurried existence was doing to both of my children. 
Although my voice trembled, I looked into my small child's eyes and said, I am so sorry I have been making you hurry. I love that you take your time, and I want to be more like you. Both my daughters looked equally surprised by my painful admission, but my younger daughter's face held the unmistakable glow of validation and acceptance. Sorry, this, uh, it, it hits pretty close to home. I promise to be more patient from now on, I said as I hugged my curly-haired child who was now beaming at her mother's newfound promise. The pace that we are setting is one that will be carried on, and it won't just be carried on, it will be accelerated. I always find that I hear parents, at least of, 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 of kids my age and, and, and you know, parents that are, that are starting to have kids for the first time, they're like, I want to provide something better for my children. I want them to go to a better school. I want them to live in a better neighborhood. I want them to live in a better house. I want to be a better parent for them. I want the better and the better and the better, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if we truly want better things for our children and their children after that and their children after that, then instead of teaching our children how to succeed in life, we need to be teaching our children to be still in the hands of God. Be still packs quite a punch, and our verse isn't over yet. When God is calling us to be still, He's calling us out of our rushed reliance on ourselves. Be still and know that I am God. Know that I am God. You see, if we know that God is God, then by the process of elimination, we know that we are not. C.S. Lewis's famous work, The Screwtape Letters, talks of a high-ranking demon named Screwtape who is training his protege Wormwood in satanic strategies against Christians. He discusses how to keep the Christians in the state of mind he calls Christianity and. This becomes Christianity and success. It becomes Christianity and the highest education. Christianity and popularity. Christianity and social status. Christianity and reform. Christianity and tradition. And the list goes on. Why? Because we are constantly replacing God with things. We start to believe that a life focused just on Jesus' finished work for us isn't enough. Or to put it another way, we are trying to find rest in something smaller than Jesus. We make it about us pursuing something new rather than making it about Jesus' pursuit of us. You see, the Bible never starts out with a list of what we need to do. It always starts out with what God has already done. You see, it's God's past that provides us with this calm confidence we move from a rushed reliance on ourselves to a calm confidence in Christ if we know that he is God. And it's God's past that provides us with that calm confidence. Because God has parted the waters for his people. God has granted protection and food for his people. God has given victory to and shown justice and mercy for his people. But the most beautiful picture of the things that God has done to give us a calm confidence is he gave us Jesus. Anytime I feel like my 
My mindset is getting misaligned and I'm, I'm starting to lose focus and I start to think, you know, maybe I could play the role of God in my own life. I'm sure God's got his plate full. If I took over in my own life, that would give him one less person to worry about. Whenever I get into that mindset, I just read Philippians 2 because the first verse, Philippians 2 verse 5, just, well, just listen. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. If I believe that I can take the place of God, my attitude is not the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, not at the name of us, but at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I ask myself these questions now. If I know that God is God and I know that I am not, what do we replace God with? Because there are things in our life that we replace God with. Bill Hybel suggests in his book, Simplify, 10 Practices to Unclutter Your Soul. He says there's a lot of common clutter in our lives. I'll just name a few. He talks about exhaustion can be a clutter that happens in our lives. See, we are not finding or maybe we aren't seeking out replenishment from something or someone. Another common clutter can be our schedule. Craig Jatilla says in his book, From Hectic to Healthy, that you will know what your priorities are according to what your schedule says. Exhaustion, schedule, finances, whether we have too much or we have too little, they can become clutter in our lives. Our job, whether we love our job too much or we hate our job so much, it can become clutter in our lives. Anger, we have a problem of letting things go. Fear, maybe we have trust issues or maybe we have this awful, awful fear of missing out. Or relationships. Past, present, or future. These things can all become clutter in our lives. These things that clutter our soul can become our new focus. They can become idols for us. They can become replacements for God. The problem is is that we are not simply replacing God for a moment or two, but we are actually rebelling against God and his plan for, for our lives. It's this whole process of Christianity and it's telling God, you are not enough to satisfy my soul. So I'm going to look for that elsewhere. I'm going to rebel against your plans for my life. See, I know that deep inside of us, we all have this this sense and urge every once in a while to just rebel. We don't want to do what our boss is telling us. I didn't say that, Pastor Randy. I did not say that. We don't want to do the things that, that maybe our spouse is telling us. Stephanie, I'm sorry. We all have this little piece in our heart that wants to rebel at one point or another, but if we truly want to satisfy the rebellion portion of our hearts, then we should be still in the presence of God because nobody else is doing that. We're rebelling against what we are supposed to be doing that's being in the hands of God and resting in his peace and purpose. So it's not just a a what do we replace God with, but let's get a little more personal here. Who? Who do we replace God with? We replace God with the person we look at in the mirror. Us. 
And what is it about the role of God that entices us to do this? What is it about the role of God that makes it so exciting for us to just, to just play God in our lives for a few moments? I wrote down three for me. You probably already know yours. But maybe you can resonate with the three that I struggle with. The things that entice me about playing the role of God, the first one would be power. Having power over situations or outcomes. It's something that I want. I don't know why, I just want it. But I've come to realize that power outside of God's will is used for selfish gain and selfish kingdoms. For me, it's not just power. It's not just power. It's not just the power part of God that I want. It's also the control. See, I want to have control over my financial stability and even control over what school my kids go to. Why? Because, here's this, we believe the lie that our control is better than God's purpose. We believe that our control is better than God's purpose. We believe for just a split second that, man, if I was in control of this situation, I'd be doing things a lot different. And God is saying, but you're not in control because I have a greater purpose for you. I can outsee you. I can outdream you. There's something bigger here that you are missing. It's not just power. It's not just control. But it's knowledge. I don't mean wisdom or I don't mean, I don't mean the smarts. I don't mean any of that. I just want to know. I want to know the whys, the hows, the wheres, the whats, and the whens. Because I think that my knowledge over a situation will grant me superiority over others, over circumstances, and even over my brokenness. If we know that God is God, then we have to know that we are not. By God's past actions of love, we can have a calm confidence in our future. God is not looking to us for an award-winning performance. God is looking to us to be self-sacrificing servants. If at the end of our lives we want to hear the famous phrase, well done, good and faithful servant, we have to realize whom it is we are serving. God wants to move us out of our rushed reliance, move us into his calm confidence. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. This psalm commands us to reflect on what God can do in the face of what we are unable to do. Christian growth and progress is not marked by the completeness of our personal or spiritual checklists. Christian growth and progress is marked by a growing realization of just how weak and incompetent we actually are and how strong and competent Jesus continues to be for us. Are we setting a pace for the next generation to even be able to get a glimpse of God? Or are they going to be on an accelerated path right past him? Are we working hard to perform or are we working hard to rest calmly and confidently in Christ's performance for us? Do we really believe that God designed us to focus more on making our mark in this world rather than making a difference for his kingdom? 
At the end of our lives, do we want people to know us? Do we want people to know our names, our stories, our successes, our achievements, or do we want them to know God's? What is leading the rebellion against God in your life? Better yet, who is leading the rebellion against God in your life? I've already mentioned him, but Kevin DeYoung writes in his book, Crazy Busy. He says, I won't hold on to anything in this world if it requires me to loosen my grip on Christ. Be still and know that I am God. Matthew 11, 28. Jesus is having a conversation about knowing God. How you can know the Father through me. You can know the Father through me. I know him and you can know him if you know me. And then he says in Matthew chapter 11 verse 28. Come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. We all know. We all know what weary and burdened means. We know what that feels like. We know how it hurts, how it drains. But do we know what it is to rest? Do we know what it is to rest in the hands of the God who has victory over this world? Do we know what it is to rest in a Savior who has already said it is finished? Don't let this be your place of rest. Let him be your place of rest. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for allowing us to snuggle into your lap a place where we can cry, a place where we can just let go of emotions, a place where we can just be honest and say, God, life is hard. God, I'm weary and I am burdened. A place where we can sit and just be in your presence. God, thanks for that. Help us to make that our focus. Help us to realize that rest does not happen on Sunday mornings, but that rest can happen every day of the week if we are resting in you and your words, your songs. God, I truly believe that we want to be closer to you, but there are just some things in our lives that clutter that path. I pray that you would help us to eliminate those and not fill our time back with other clutter. God, help us to rest in who you are for us. Not in the things that we need to do, not in all of the good things that we could do, but in the best thing that you have called us to. God, help us to find you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.